number of vital issues. I have to be succinct and I need to be selective in what I talk about here tonight. So please grant me some grace. Uh, I might not talk about what you think is absolutely necessary. I might talk about some things at some length that you don't think are all that important. But my goal this evening is to identify some driving lanes that will steer us to think constructively and biblically about our world and what is referred to as racism and what's been brought to our attention so dramatically in these recent days. I'd like to do that with four pillars of a biblical worldview, but first let me frame the recent flashpoint of this matter with three descriptive phrases. Um, The first is the incendiary nature of the entire event. On May the 25th, as we're probably all well aware, George Floyd, age 46, was arrested by Minneapolis police officers. During the arrest, he died, it would appear, of heart failure, a condition exacerbated by illicit drugs in his system and by a police officer using his knee to pin Mr. Floyd's neck to the ground. I suspect that Mr. Floyd died of what some would call a perfect storm of converging factors, and I'm not convinced at this point that anybody has all of them put together yet at this point. But what is most important, at least for our consideration tonight, what has riveted the nation are the images of a helpless black man in handcuffs with the knee of a white officer on his neck as his life ebbs away under that knee. It's no mystery why such an act would spark such a firestorm of protest. And I think it should. It should. There should be objection across the board to what took place. Secondly is the graphic nature of the video evidence it is very hard to watch someone die on your screen. And the vividness of that, the, um, the nature of how that information was passed on to us was very challenging. And such graphic information transferred to the public not only fueled then protests and riotous mayhem, but quickly evolved into a call for systemic change to our society at every level. Third point is we just frame the event that took place, and that's the depraved nature of the officer's actions. There may be more to Mr. Floyd's death than we are able to determine on the basis of video evidence, and I think we should all remember that. Uh, We draw very firm, universal conclusions on the basis of what our eyes see, There may well be much more that comes out in the days ahead, and I think patience and calm is important until all the facts are assembled. Some such evidence might emerge during the trial, certainly, but George Floyd's treatment in the minutes preceding his death, I think it is fair to say was degrading, it was inhumane, it was an egregious abuse of power and authority in that moment. All four officers, to widely varying degrees, sinned against God. I think it would be fair to say that on some level, especially the one who showed no mercy as Mr. Floyd and bystanders pleaded for his life. This was a heartless, senseless, merciless act of injustice. I think it is right for us to see it that way, again, reserving the fact that there may certainly be things that we are yet to learn. But it became quickly evident that this was not merely about the death of one man, but about much more than the circumstances that are just surrounding that death. The media, people in high places, have formed a loud chorus of insistence that the entire nation respond aggressively against the systemic problem of racism in our land. How should we interpret these events? How should we look at them? How should we respond to them? Mostly setting aside the complex political aspects, which there are many, 
I want to limit my comments here to four lanes of biblical thought that must channel our response to these matters. The first is the dignity of man made in God's image. First, there is only one human race of which Adam and Eve are the single progenitors. They are the producers of one race. Racism is a serviceable term sociologically. It's how we understand uh, hatred between ethnic identities and how they relate to one another. But let's remember and not lose sight of our biblical moorings that there is really just one race. Biblically speaking, one race, the human race, Adam and Eve, I believe are our literal father and mother. Now, many even Christian churches would say that the first chapters of Genesis are fictional. I believe that they are true history. And we therefore have the same parents, whoever we are. And I think that's a significant thought. If, if you fail then to see a person of different skin color or ethnic heritage as your biological brother or sister, you really have a problem with God. You really need to get in sync with God's revealed truth about how he brought this world into being. The second point follows naturally, and that is that all people possess inherent worth as creatures made in God's image. We must treat all people with respect and dignity because they are made in God's image. How we treat the vulnerable, how we treat the sick, how we treat ethnic minorities, how we treat the elderly and the like reveals the honor that we afford to God as their creator, as our creator, as brother and sister in the human race. So when we look down on others as inferior because of the color of their skin or the origin of their tribe, we denigrate God's image in them. It is not just an offense against them, it's an offense against their creator. I believe that George Floyd was treated as an inferior creature. On some level, he was not afforded the dignity that God assigned him at birth. I have no idea, and I don't think anybody here does, I have no idea what role racial hatred played in this death. There's many that are pontificating about that. They know what's in people's minds and hearts. I don't know what's in people's minds and hearts. And I don't think it's right for us to determine this is the part that racial hatred played in these events. But on the force of this point, on the force of God as our creator and all people made in his image, let me say that black lives matter. Now, as I say that, we realize there's a lot of political pieces to that. As a political movement, Black Lives Matter opposes a biblical worldview in many respects. And we have no time for that. I don't condone many of this movement's political aspirations. But let us graciously discern the difference between politics and expression. So I'm not talking politics here but rather expression. Black lives do matter, and we relate to a small segment of our nation that has suffered oppression for centuries. So when we say that all lives matter in response, I think we can often be heard to say that in a dismissive way. And I think we need to be cautious with it. You may mean just what you're saying, all lives matter, and that's all that you mean, and that's what you're saying, but again, let's hear it as it can be heard, and that's that, no, not really. So we really have an interpretation issue here. Black lives matter, does that mean only black lives matter? None of us would agree with that based on this major point of God as creator. But if it means black lives matter too, and we would agree, right? So I think I would suggest that in this context, particularly whenever possible, we should assume two. Black lives matter too. 
And I think that on the basis of the history, on the basis of the context. Let me illustrate. If I was teaching a Bible study at the Shakopee Jail, and a prisoner asked about my life, and I shared my life, and how God had blessed my life, and kind of looking at me and just saying, I don't know anything about that world. And there's this long pause, and then he says, inmates' lives matter to God. Inmates' lives matter to God. How do I answer? Well, yeah, that's true. Everyone's life matters to God. Subtly there, I've been a bit dismissive, haven't I? What would I say in my position with a life that's very blessed as I meet with this man whose life is very messed up? I'd say, yeah, you're right. Inmates' lives matter too. You too are made in the image of God. I wouldn't take time to fill in the details. And I realize politically there's a lot more to it. It gets a lot more complicated, I realize. But I just would humbly suggest that when we, as white majority um, population Christians, hear Black Lives Matter, we just graciously affirm, yes, they do. We don't have to straighten it out. And we don't have to take it as that means that white lives don't. Now, I think that's probably true with some individuals. They do think that, and that's wrong. It's just as wrong in the other direction as it is in this one. But I want to just use that phrase to consider this major point. They matter to God. They matter to us. In Adam, we are just, they are just as precious to God as every other ethnic group in the world. And so, yes, black lives matter. Secondly, the pervasive corruption of sin. First of all, the fall of man into sin thoroughly corrupts every heart and every aspect of society. I'm not going to take the time to go through texts I believe we know well here tonight, but Romans 3, 10 through 12, there is no one that is righteous, no one that seeks after God. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we are by nature dead in transgressions and sins. To think that we can deal then a death blow to racism by rooting out systemic societal inequities against African Americans is pure nonsense. It's just foolishness. The problem runs much, much deeper than that. Racism is just one fruit of a bitter root of rebellion against God in which unbelievers reject his lordship, violate his law, then employ deceit, manipulation, and self-serving ambition. Fixating on racism as the systemic problem at the heart of America's troubles is like a doctor treating the flu and ignoring the patient's cancer. And I don't mean the flu is a small thing. It can, you can just about want to die. It's a terrible thing. But if someone's got cancer, you're not helping them out there. There's something much deeper to this. We must dig deeper. And when we dig deeper than what's called racism, what we get to at the bottom of it is things such as hatred, pride, fear, and selfishness. Put those together as a concoction. Pride, fear, hatred, selfishness. And you have the fuel for racism and a hundred other things for a long, long time to come. As long as man's kingdom stands. Further, pervasive sin guarantees that man's answers to sin are also corrupted. So we've got to go a lot deeper... And we have to realize that this world's answers to the sin problem are always going to be short-sighted and faulty. Secondly, sin binds us to our own sin and it orients us to suppress the truth. Colossians 4.4, 4, Satan blinds the eyes of the lost to the gospel. Romans 1 and verse 18, the lost suppress the truth of God. That is, they push it down. They don't want to see it. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things. So I speak perhaps primarily here to young people, young adults, to teens, to children. Remember that when the media and celebrities and politicians stand up and speak against racism, 
They speak as people blinded by their own hypocrisy. And they actively are suppressing God's revealed truth. We'll get to more of that in a moment. But this does not mean that everything they say is wrong. I don't mean that. It does mean they fail to see their own sin. They reject God's truth naturally. And they avoid the call to repentance. That's going on as they instruct people what to do how to respond, and where we need to take it from here. We need to always remember this. Nor do I mean that every Christian always speaks the truth or never rejects God's truth. In fact, let's talk about, primarily again for those that are in the white majority, let's talk about something kind of hard. It's something we need to come to terms with in our own blindness, perhaps, in our own selfishness, where it's very easy to just look past history and troubles and difficulties. Let's face them a bit tonight. As a white majority culture, followers of Christ, we can struggle, struggle to grasp the psychological effects that a heritage of slavery and oppression can have upon an African American today. They weren't slaves, Nobody living now was a slave in America, but that's their heritage. And I think we have to recognize just graciously and humbly that it is difficult for us to understand what it means to be able to say this. I am in this land because one of my ancestors was kidnapped from his or her homeland, assigned the status of an animal, and then driven to work on the property of slave owners as the property of slave owners. That's your heritage. Then as your heritage continues forward in the history of this nation, post-Civil War era, you hear accounts of how members of your family faced a host of governmental policies calibrated to keep your family tree in second-class status for generations. Things were calibrated to keep you down, to not allow you to prosper for generations. Later on, you hear stories of relatives who were denied the use of restrooms and drinking fountains and seats in restaurants and on buses. And you hear stories of black men who were lynched. And, in one case, a town of 300 that was burned to the ground and no prosecution. It just got away with it many, many times. Sometimes the authorities did intervene, but not always. You hear these stories. This is your heritage. To blow that all off and say, well, that's just past history. It's got nothing to do with people now, I think is to not recognize the self-perception. And we just need to graciously recognize that history if we were not part of it. Then there's our own day. We should grieve the damage caused by broken social policies devised by white power brokers who continue to weaken the African-American culture and then demand to be honored for their compassion. Some of us will understand this better than others. I understand this. My grandfather was extremely poor as a, as a tenant farmer, moving from farm to farm. My father was never wealthy, but through the stability of his home, he began to make progress and went to college, which his father could have never dreamed of doing. And though I grew up poor, uh, we never had money. I think of the things we couldn't do, and it kind of amazes me today. But through the stability of my home and the help of my parents, I've been able to rise higher economically, educationally, in a lot of different ways. I have privileges that neither my parents nor my grandparents had. It takes a lot of time and multi-generational sharing and support 
for individuals to come to a place where they flourish in a society. And I think of where my grandfather was, and I think of where I am today, and I realize there's a lot of people behind me, supporting me, in, in homes that were together and unified and helping their children until they died. African Americans as a whole have been subjected to systems that have restricted that flourishing. It's like there's this whole extra layer that fights against standing and prospering. So there is, we've heard of it, slavery and Jim Crow laws and redlining and segregation and mass incarceration, realizing these, that's a politically charged point. But we can be quick to respond that such a world is no longer here. And that is true. It is no longer here, but ironically today, the oppression continues. It continues in a very different way. It is sourced now predominantly in the kind of help offered by liberal politicians, bureaucrats who seem blind to the reality of human depravity. African Americans remain oppressed today. I'm not going to say that in the way that so many of them would think of it or so many liberals would think of it, but they are held down by a narrative, for instance, that teaches them that the peculiar sins of their subculture are not sins against God and they have no consequences. This is a lie that continues to be perpetuated. For instance, they are encouraged to believe that biological fathers raising their own children within a covenant of marriage is utterly unnecessary. I know that my experiences are limited, just anecdotal, but I worked for three years on the streets of North Minneapolis in the toughest neighborhood there for three years with young men off the street. And in those three years, I never met one young man who lived with his father. Not one. There are serious consequences to that. And so many, particularly in the inner city in a place like North Minneapolis off of Broadway, they're told it doesn't matter. It's not a problem. The government has you covered. You can live this way. You can't. You can't and prosper. They're assured that there's no connection between fatherless homes and high crime rates or hopelessness among African-American young people. Now, whites do not need to commend irresponsibility in order to recognize the misuse the black community has suffered historically. And I think we should think of this. We should grieve that many today are less positioned to flourish in our society than most immigrants. I, I believe that. I, you can push back against it. But as I look at things, I think that most, maybe, if, I don't know, it's not scientifically described, but I think that many, many of them are in worse conditions than immigrants to prosper. We can point the finger at a hundred places in that, and I'm, not, I'm just not going there tonight, but I don't think in any of this that my goal here is for us to say we should be overridden with this heavy cloud of guilt. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's going to help anyone. But we do need to recognize that the African-American culture has been systemically harmed in their attempts to flourish over many generations, and this really is a thing. I think we recognize this on many levels, but it's just good for us here to face that and to have a right sense of compassion, not of pity, but of genuine, thoughtful, humble compassion. Sadly, I have utterly no hope for an iota of agreement on what to do about all this. Many stand forward and just say, we need to give more. But without fixing the sin issues, without addressing the things that are going against the counsel of God, we're going to fix nothing. It's just going to be throw more money at it. 
and the situation just continues to degenerate. And obviously, in some ways, it's made progress as well. They, they go together. But let me, thirdly, I'm a bit lost here, but let me come back to it. The fall of man in, uh, in sin demands, number three, law enforcement. God has ordained police protection for the flourishing of society. Romans chapter 13, police officers are imperfect people, and there are certainly some bad apples in every barrel of cops, we could say. But I can tell you, as a pastor, there's some really bad apples in the barrel of pastors. There are some pastors that have stolen a lot of money, harmed a lot of people sexually, done a lot of wicked things. We don't abolish the clergy. We realize there's some individuals that have issues, and they need to be removed, replaced, disciplined, and the like. But we don't get rid of them, thankfully. But it's imperative, particularly now, that we honor those who put their lives on the line to serve and protect our safety and our well-being every day. They say often, they go out into this world to find the people you're trying to avoid at all cost. It's a tough world. It's a tough life. But they do that for the flourishing of our society, and we need to respect that and thank God for it. And know that in his common grace, the vast majority get up and do their job each day. There are bad representatives, but we do not spit on the police. That is wrong. We thank God for them. Are reforms needed? I think certainly. I, who would ever say any system is not in need of reform in a sinful world? Of course. But dismantling police forces as unnecessary evils is not only mindlessly irresponsible, it is an aggressive suppression of God's will and his revelation concerning human depravity and how to address it in society. We cannot do without the police. We thank God for them while seeking improvement. All right, let me go then next to the redemption that is in Christ alone. This is my third major heading, the redemption that is in Christ alone. First, there's only one source of true justice and lasting reconciliation, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking here, this isn't Bible class, simple statement to get us into other things. I'm saying that in light of the situation that we are now facing, there is only one source of true justice and lasting reconciliation. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The justice sought in our world and apparently by most Christians these days is pure fantasy. In light of our nation's history and current condition, what is justice? What does that look like? What would it be? How would we know that we had it? No one knows, let alone agrees. While it's difficult to believe that racial reconciliation is a genuine quest anymore, the sort of justice that encourages reconciliation between alienated parties finds only one source. That source is not a new U.S. Constitution or socialism as a replacement of systemic racism? That answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus died as a sacrificial substitute for Adam's race of sinners, securing perfect justice for all believers. And only the justice Jesus satisfied on the cross and only his resurrection power can truly reconcile alienated people. There is no other way. That's why we're here. To speak this truth to a lost world. That it is done. It is possible. It has been accomplished. All that you're looking for is in the work of Jesus Christ. That's our witness. That's our message. Not to hide in our homes. And not to simply point fingers. 
And certainly, I don't think to join forces with the world and its ideas, but to point to Jesus Christ crucified and risen. No other form of justice is ever complete, and no other type of reconciliation is anything more than a temporary truce between enemies. Short of receiving this reconciliation in Christ, no enemy will ever find reconciliation with another. And Jesus' church should not pretend that they will. Three, current crisis, the current crisis calls for believers to proclaim the true gospel, calling sinners of every tribe and nation to repent of sin, trust in Christ as Savior, and be reconciled to God. What African Americans need most is not racial justice. It's not reconciliation with white people. What they need first is reconciliation with God. What they need is adoption into the family of God. And that's exactly what every white person needs too. So the question could be asked here, where are the African Americans among us? Why are there not more? This is a question that troubles many Uh, gospel preaching churches. I think that there are many complicated answers to that. I don't have time to get into some of the societal pieces of it, some of the ways I think we could think about it. It's just a topic that I cannot dig into too far. But let me say this about that idea. First of all, I think our immigrant population, particularly from West Africa, is a sign of hope. We thank God for them. And I would say to immigrants among us here tonight, to those that are hearing my words, to African Americans that are in our congregation, to Asians, to all people of color, you are not welcomed here by the whites you are welcomed here by Jesus Christ this is your church this is not our church it's ours collectively this is your family just as much as it is anyone else's so you're here because you are a brother because you are a sister in Jesus Christ you're loved You're valued. You are a joy and a strength to this assembly. And we celebrate your presence. And I think there's some hope there. But again, going back to the question of why not more African Americans, again, a long, complex answer that we can't get into, but... Let me say that the primary reason there are not more African Americans in this assembly is this. You and I have not met a neighbor, gotten to know them, had a Bible study with them, brought them to church, and saw them come to Christ as Savior. That's why. There's not some sort of program you can do. There's not some sort of aura that we can create here, spray some incense around or something and magically create a situation where African Americans want to join in among us. There's a lot of things against that. But the reason is we haven't found someone in our lives and led them to Christ. That's the reason. It's not magic. African Americans are a small percentage of Minnesotans. We start with that. Secondly, they're not going to relocate to Burnsville and visit Eden Baptist Church like whites or even immigrants might do. They're not going to leave black churches to identify with us as whites and immigrants sometimes do. To join the church, they will need to be led to Christ one person at a time and brought into the family that loves them and is committed to their growth in Christ. 
So the key is to meet people and to tell them about Jesus. Let me put that together with those in our assembly who we so celebrate and love of our West African members in this assembly. There's a direct connection between them and our assembly due to their evangelical heritage and our gospel preaching heritage. So as they move into this assembly, they will visit. And when they hear the gospel, they identify with it or come to know Christ the Savior. And we have seen a number that have been saved and baptized in this assembly. But there's a heritage there of a certain type of evangelical foundation that draws some of them to us. African Americans would be much more like Somalis coming into our church. We're not going to have a Somali Muslim come to our church because they moved to Burnsville, right? I mean, that's just silly. They're not going to come because they're just looking for another place to worship. Of course, they're not going to get anywhere near us. But how are we going to bring a Somali Muslim to Christ? It's going to be by meeting them individually, getting to know them, developing trust, and pointing them to Christ the Savior. I think, culturally speaking, it's pretty similar to where African Americans are. There's, again, I, I'd love to fill in the details. It'd be a really interesting conversation, but there's a thousand things that would keep them from coming to this church. And the only thing that's going to work is you meeting someone and bringing them in. And when they come in, you know we'll receive them. You know that we will rejoice to point them to Christ. So to the final point, and on this I will ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And as we look at the consummation that awaits. So looking at creation, all are made in the image of God and are to be treated with dignity and respect as bearing His image. When it comes to sin, we recognize that all of man's systems and ideas are corrupted and blinded to the truth, which is number three, that justice and reconciliation are found only in Jesus Christ, and that's the message we're here to take. You long for justice, you long for reconciliation. Here's where perfect justice took place at the cross, creating a reconciliation with God, which then leads to a reconciliation with one another. But we're also in all of this looking forward. And we look to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, where they sang a new song in the final day in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see it there, it's every tribe language, and people gathered around the throne of God. Our gathering as a church, we long for the nations, the different ethnicities to gather with us, to come in among us, to worship with us, because it's a reflection of the final day when this worship will be universal. Many people from many places. The day is coming when all this warring and anxious labor will be over. As we approach that day, we should labor as is fitting and according to our different callings to see America pursue justice and improvement in racial relationships. But by God's grace, may we orient our lives toward drawing all people into a relationship with Jesus Christ here and now. And so, let us move toward that moment around the throne. What do you perceive there? Not when perceive there a gathering of people of Western, maybe Eastern European background, but of Western and Eastern European and everywhere else on the planet gathered around the throne of God 
with all types of skin colors. Hair colors and eye colors and all of it that God made gathered there around the throne. That's where we are headed. And the distinctiveness of where we live will all be gone. And we need to have that eternal perspective. We will worship Christ as one. Celebrating the ethnic distinctions that he has created with his creative genius. So let us then take that eternal perspective. And, I, and let me say again, as we kind of come back around to the beginning here, I'm horrified, as I know we are as a church, saddened by the death of George Floyd. I, I wish that there was more time for him in this world to work on his life, to prepare to meet God. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he's headed. I just wish there was more time. I wish these things had not happened. But let's also remember and keep in perspective that sometimes location so rivets our attention we lose sight of the bigger picture. What happened here, and, and it was a big deal. I mean, it's all over the world. Minneapolis, people that can't even say the word are you know, hearing about Minneapolis. It, it's a big thing. But so much of it is just because it's our neighborhood. And I, and I just want to encourage us to think larger and bigger as we think of consummation. A week after George Floyd's death, a Nigerian pastor and seminary professor, Emmanuel Saba Belea, a graduate at Calvin Theological Seminary in Michigan, and his wife, Juliana, were shot to death They were shot to death at their farmhouse by militants. People who said, that's a Christian leader. He needs to go. And out of I don't know what, just absolute hatred and spite took his wife out as well. Juliana was pregnant with their ninth child. They leave behind 19-year-old down to a one-year-old, and she was pregnant. Think of this. A pastor serving a church, a seminary professor working to train other pastors there with this excellent education from the United States and being able to train up and raise up other pastors. A father of nine with the same woman living within the covenant of marriage gunned down in cold blood. Both of them. I don't say this, I'm not saying this with a mean, harsh spirit. I, I'm, I really am not. But I just think, honestly, let's be honest about it. I suspect that if a church in the Twin Cities on June the 7th had said nothing about George Floyd and had talked about this couple, they would have been criticized as a racist church. We, want, we need to slow down, be patient, and look long. This is a big event. It has far-reaching implications, and we'll be dealing with these implications the rest of our lives. So I'm not minimizing anything. I'm just saying, in light of eternity, let's keep a big perspective and know that there is suffering and difficulty and injustice that is taking place around the globe all the time. I don't know if you're tracking with Nigeria right now, but Christians are being gunned down and even burned to death repeatedly. Villages are being overrun that identify as Christian villages and they're literally burning Christians to death. That's injustice. As we think of the large perspective of this life, we look forward to that time around the throne where there will be such tremendous reward for those that have so given their lives. So let's maintain that perspective. The injustice committed against our brothers and sisters across the globe far outstrips even the suffering of African Americans in this country. 
I grieve with the suffering. I, the, the history of it is horrifying. It is a deep sin in the very fabric of our nation, and we want to fight it. But let's also remember that there is even greater suffering in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ in various parts of the world. Let's keep our feet under us, our perspective straight, and think about the big picture as we pursue the throne. So I, I want to just, um, we'll talk here, uh, interact in just a moment, but I, I would encourage us as a church, be patient don't draw harsh conclusions. Don't say things that you're going to regret later as more information comes out. You read one thing, one line, be sure that it's right. Be sure that it's tested. Be patient. Concerning silence, you hear the phrase, we've all heard it, white silence is violence. All that I'm hearing white people saying, it might just be wise for a few of them to shut up. It just You don't need to flap your jaw and fix the world. You're not going to. Let's be, I think it'd be better for us as a church to be more of a quiet, patient, plodding, persistent pursuit of gospel ministry rather than to get on Facebook and tell the world how it is. You don't know how it is. So maybe a little silence wouldn't hurt us. We're not saying nearly enough about the gospel. And I say that myself. I think this is an opportunity for us to say the justice that this world longs for, the reconciliation this world longs for has been won by Christ. There's nobody going to, to proclaim that message but those who are born-again followers of Jesus. What an opportunity is ours at this point. Concerning statistics... Just make them a, a, a quiet pastime. Don't make anything of them. Uh, we can all gather statistics and say, this proves my point, and wield it around like we've got answers. None of us are statisticians. None of us really know what's going on. Oh, yeah, that's right, Christine. <laughs> there is one. <laughs> all right. That's, that's right. But um, just, just be really, really careful. That, we, that you don't grab some statistic that proves your point and then wield that around. Um, Rich, are you coming? Come ahead here. I should have called you at the beginning of this. I'm stalling. But let me, let's, uh, we'll kind of transition to the next segment here. We'll, we'll take about um, 10 minutes here. And as Dan was speaking... Um, he so masterfully just answered all the Q&A questions <laughs> that just skillfully made my heart levels start to rise. <laughs> As one after another, the questions that I had so thoughtfully prepared for tonight were masterfully answered already. Now, what that actually means is that a lot of your questions that many of you emailed in have already been addressed, uh, which hopefully is, is helpful in that way. So... Um, Dan, I thought, and he's extremely unprepared uh, for <laughs> some of these questions, so That's we'll right. just, we'll just talk right. a little bit here. Um, there was um, there was a question I thought we could, we could hit a little bit here. Uh, someone asked, how can we resist various temptations to view incidents like this primarily through a political or a partisan lens. Um, there are so many issues that interlock and overlap, and it's just a web of, of coming together ideas. It's hard to, to not do that, but I think the question is primarily, um, how can we as, as Christians guard against that reflexive uh, political impulse and, and so that our, our predominant you know, instinct is, is biblical rather than maybe political. Yeah, and I, I just, you know, say I, I don't have 
any unique wisdom on these things as such, but just somebody's got to talk here, so we'll, we'll work it out, and I think we could talk about it all together as we part here too. But um, I, I, this is a little bit of what I was up to by talking about the couple that was just killed in Nigeria and the consummation of the age and the like. And that just always strive to be thinking of the big picture and the long picture. We get, and when we get narrowed into the political, we often are, get very angry, very upset. Lots of emotions are flowing. I don't think much good ever comes out of that. It might give you a little bit of steam and momentum for a while, but it tends to blow away pretty carefully. There's more of the quiet, slow burn that takes you forward. The big emotional reaction that gets you all fired up about this political point or that political point is usually just kind of like air out of a balloon. I mean, it just lasts for a little while and you whip all over the room and then pretty soon you die. Uh, just think of the big scheme. So when we see something where there's this political debate, recognize these are people for whom Jesus died. These are people that probably are blinded by sin. These are people that are coming up with the best answers they can, but they don't see Christ, they don't see his salvation, and there's a more of an ache and a hurt there for them as we're looking long, rather than just looking at the political difference. Remember, and, and I, I want to be careful because I think there's some with unique callings to affect uh, political uh, change and the like, and I think all of us on some level can have a part in the political change. It's right, it's good. But recognize that you're not God's gift to the political world. You're not going to change America by what you say or think or how angry you get. So keep that in perspective, and I think just be looking at the big scheme, and I think tonight's helpful. Think creation, fall, redemption, consummation as you're thinking through things rather than filtering it through Republican, Democrat, left, right. Those things are all going to die. So my point, I, I think we want to affect change. It's right for us to do so, but remember, we're leaving this earth pretty soon. So keep that in view and what's going to last for eternity and how are we going to serve Christ until then, I think is the focus. Something, as you were talking about the significance of fatherhood, I haven't thought about most of even the political ideas that will probably be passed on are probably derived by osmosis around a dinner table or in a car as a comment's made over the radio. And it just cemented the idea of how Christian fathers and Christian homes, uh, the significance of even, there's no, there's no uh, you know, as soon as the topic of politics comes on, it's not that we get free speech to just say anything that streams through <laughs> right. our head. Um, the, and, and perhaps it's most difficult where uh, we need in those moments, we are teaching or modeling how to think about life in a broken world, even as it pertains to a political point of view and, and even that in the positive sense, the, the, the fatherhood grace that that is to model and to teach um, was a, a hmm. thought that came to mind. Um, Good. How do you, uh, maybe especially, we, we talked about this issue a little bit, it feels like years ago now, but it was only a week and a half ago uh, with hmm. our teens over our last Zoom call that we did on Sunday night. And uh, we're seeking to do the same thing, just how do we how do we respond to things? And one of the uh, points was that just patience in the midst of a culture that just cries, ride the wave of emotion like a tsunami finding, finding its course through a city and, and adding any baggage it, it needs on the way and debris and just, just run. Um, and how do we guard against sort of the emotion of White silence is violence. To not say anything is abuse, um, which I, I've definitely heard. And how do we do that without communicating the sense that we are opposed or that we are the enemy? Um, obviously, yeah. there's a certain concession of being misunderstood, and we just have to know that that's going to happen. Right. But right. maybe especially, I know that even just our younger people, this, the groundswell movement to, to be an activist, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be a, a leader for change is so strong. 
um, how do we have that patience to, without communicating yeah, the opposite it, message? It's a, um, it's a fruit of the Spirit, is patience. And it is, it's something that we all need to learn to exercise, what, particularly when there's a call for everybody to say something, to line up with your team, say what you're supposed to say. There's nothing wrong with just being quiet during those times, just saying nothing. Let things blow over and let things settle. And there's a perspective that comes with time that these initial reactionary responses do not accomplish righteousness. Uh, I, I, it'd be better if I had a story where I was the villain, not the hero, but <laughs> I, here it goes. But um, it, it just, it, I, I, I've used this as, I think I did the right thing in this situation, and I've used it as, as something for the rest of my life. And that was, I was coaching a team in one of our kids' uh, basketball uh, rec league, and there was a really intense moment at the end of the game, and it turned into a riot. I mean, people went to jail, people got really, really hurt, knocked unconscious, the whole place was just bedlam. And I was in the middle of the start of it, because I was a coach of the team that got ripped off and sent people over the edge. And when I saw people start punching and fighting, I just turned around and slowly walked away. I just said, this is useless. I can't stop it. There's nothing I can do to go in there and stop the fight, and it is an absolute waste of time. A bunch of emotion just blowing over and all kinds of people getting hurt and hit. Then when it was all over, came back. But, so forgive me, I'm the hero there, but, but I've used that as an illustration of just exactly how I've wanted to respond to this thing. When there's all this punching and fighting and upheaval and riot and mayhem, and just stand back, be patient, your time will come. I, I just think that's a good thing for all of us to, to, to do in times where it's so emotional. My family, forgive me, I bounce all kinds of my wild political ideas off of them. <laughs> so I, I talk a little differently at home because I'm working through things out loud, and we all are. And of course, the age of our family, it's really a lot of fun uh, at this point in time. But um, depending on where you're at as a family, just Christian, learn patience. Just be at peace to not be the person out in front yelling everything. And just take your time and work toward a day when it'll be time to speak and it'll be time to uh, make progress. The progress we're going to make is if this can motivate us to meet people, to help people, to share the gospel, that's what's really going to be good that comes of it. Nobody here is going to write some political book that solves the problem. Uh, it's, the, the book's been written, <laughs> so let's, let's proclaim it. Along those lines, just to really practice, we'll make this our last question, but should we as a church or as individual believers be doing something to reach out in practical ways to minority neighbors, coworkers uh, in general, uh, specifically at times like these? Um, I know this person maybe feels the tension of sometimes we hear um, even African-American friends that say, all of a sudden when events like this happen, I get all these texts from my white friends who want to have that personal inside knowledge and it almost feels like, oh, now you're reaching out, now I'm sort of your token friend that, so with, is there yeah, a, I think similar an answer. idea there um, where we're not trying to use people, um, right. but we're genuinely trying to, as the Lord brings relationships, minister and to be sensitive. Right, um, yeah, I, we, we need to love people, not, not with an agenda. Love people, love all people, every shape and size and color and everything. Age and men, women, children, infirm. Love people. Wherever we can reach out to someone who's marginalized in some sense, we're following Jesus in doing that. And we want to always be seeking opportunities to connect with people. So I, I, I hope I'm not misunderstood here or wrong here in Jesus' mind. But I don't look at this as somehow this unique opportunity now that for a short window of time I have this opportunity that's going to be really awesome. I don't think so. I, I think 
wait a little bit, step back with those friends that you could talk to, be the second in line because they'll get inundated with all these questions perhaps, depends on how you know them. But I think what we want to do is just be rebuked in our heart that I don't reach out more to people that are not like me. And to, find, and to think about that. How can I do that? Maybe not right in the wave of the energy of this, but as time passes, how can I love all people as Jesus does and seek that out and be open to that and aware of that? I think that's where real change can come from within our church. Thank you, Dan, for serving us in this way. We're going to transition now to just ending our time together by taking these thoughts and going to the Lord directly.